Well, welcome to Mechanicsville Church of Christ. We're excited you are here. I think I'm on. Uh, we're excited that you're here. If this is your first time, uh, welcome. We're glad uh, that you chose to worship with us today. If you've been coming for a while and want to get plugged in, or if you're new and you just have questions, I want to encourage you to text the word welcome to 804-404-9430. That should be on the screens uh, to the side, or if you're watching online, we're glad that you're choosing to, to t- tune in if you're watching online, wherever you're at. Um, hopefully you can hear me also. I think we're working on that. So that'll be, that'll be fun, hopefully, when you guys can hear me also. Um, we're glad that you guys are here. For those who are new, I just want to catch you up briefly on what's been happening the last few months. You see, back in June, the previous senior minister... Re- Hello. <laughs> we're here. Uh, just to catch you guys up, if you are new, um, the previous senior minister retired after 17 years on June 14th, and I had the honor of stepping into his shoes. Before that happened, though, as we were gearing up for it, back before even 2020 began, he came to me and said, we need to start working on this transition process now to make sure it's as seamless as possible. And so he encouraged me and told me to do a couple things even as early as January, the beginning of this year. At the beginning of this year, I started running the staff meetings. He started directing some of the questions and decisions to me, even back that early, for things that impacted uh, June and further out that he knew that he was retiring. And so we worked very closely together. We talked about a lot of things, but he said, ultimately, I'm going to look to you to really guide and direct a lot of these behind-the-scenes decisions. Um, And we worked together on a lot of it. One of the things that he encouraged me to do, though, is to create my own vision for MCC. So when he came here 17 years ago, he saw the church, he saw the community, and he created a vision of what he saw happening in this church and what this church could be and do in our community. And to summarize that vision, he created that tagline, love God, love people, and impact the world for future generations. And in many, many, many metrics, he was very successful in accomplishing that vision. We have a great children's program. GCS has come, and you guys have bent over backward to do things that are outside your comfort zone for the next generation. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for all the sacrifices you made, for everything that you did. I know that Mark would echo that thank you as well. In fact, he did back in June for all the ways and all the things that you guys as a church did to impact the next generation. So he encouraged me to create my own vision that I can spearhead, that I can lead, that I can get behind 120%. Not that I wasn't behind the other one, but he told me, and then from what I read, each senior minister needs to bring their own vision of what the church can be and be and do in the community. And so I started thinking about it. I prayed a lot about it. I started reading some scripture about vision and what we are here to do, and I prayed some more about it. And I started to create a framework. And halfway through this process, I realized, you know, I don't think it's good for me to do this by myself. So I created a team. I was very creative, and since we were talking about vision, I called it the vision team. Super creative, guys. But I asked some of you guys, we had 10 people on this team from the church to help me develop this vision of what the church can be and what the church can do 
in our community. And I went to this team and I started with just the basic bare bones that I had so far. And I said, I need help developing and fleshing out the rest. And I gotta be honest, guys. It was a blast. I had a great time talking about it. And I think most who were a part of that team also had a great time from what they told me afterward. But we fleshed it out. We worked out all the details. And in the next week, few weeks to come, we're going to unpack what we came up with. Now, I told him on, from the onset, if we do not need to change, love God, love people, and impact the world for future generations, then I don't want to. Contrary to popular belief, I do not like change just for change's sake. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, right, you've changed so much. So much has changed since COVID, and it has. But unless it has a reason and a purpose, then we shouldn't change anything. But in order to grow, in order to continue, in order to reach this community in a new age, in a new, with a new generation, some things might need to change. And you guys have shown us so well how you can handle that, and it's been awesome. But I told them from the onset, if we don't need to change it, we won't. Well, by the end of that meeting, you know, or the end of the, our, our meetings together, we decided to change it. And I'm going to make you hold on and wait to hear what it is until the very end. Because it's just a summary. It's just a summary of what we talked about. So this morning, what I want to do is let you guys hear the framework I gave them from the beginning. This is the why behind the vision. And at its core is this question of what are we even here for? Not humanity, not mankind, but as believers, what are we doing here? Why do we gather together? What is the purpose of, of this organization of Mechanics Church of Christ? What is the point? What is the reason behind it? And we have to start there in order to get to a vision. And time after time, we talked about a whole host of things. It all boiled down to this one word, discipleship. And we all came back to this one passage in Matthew 28, where Jesus says to his disciples right before he leaves the world to go back to heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This was the verse that guided everything. This is why we are here, to make disciples. After diving into this passage a little bit more so, what we saw is that discipleship is multifaceted. That there's really two key components that make up this big word called discipleship. And in many regards, one word kind of goes this way, and one word kind of goes this way, and it, mean, it, just, it means all of that. So what we saw in the passage is that discipleship then includes baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So baptizing is this idea, we put the fancy word on it, called evangelism, right? That we go out into the world, we tell people who don't know about Jesus, about this na man named Jesus and what he's done for them, and then hopefully they believe it, they accept it, and they're baptized into the faith and they become a Christian. We're then teaching is the continued ongoing discipleship process where we gather, we dive into God's word, we learn more about him, we 
we are taught to observe and we apply that to our lives and how we should live in accordance with what God taught us in his word. So it applies to evangelism and it applies to teaching and diving and making our lives more like Christ. And we have to be very careful that we get those in the right order. We have to make sure that we first baptize, that we first tell people about Christ, and then we teach them to observe all that God has commanded us. Let's face it, for the, ch- for the church, for many Christians for a long time, we've expected people who don't know Christ to act as Christians. Do you see what so-and-so did? I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they said that thing. Well, they're not a Christian. Why would they follow the same rules and start with the same foundation that we do if they don't believe in Christ? If this book has no worth to them, why would they follow it? Why would they live their lives in accordance with something they don't believe in or something they are not? When you're a doctor, those who are doctors or nurses, you graduate from school and you begin your profession. You take the Hippocratic Oath, promising to practice medicine in an ethical way, not to do harm. I could take that oath, but it doesn't do me a whole lot of good. I'm not a doctor, not a nurse. You come to me to practice medicine, you must be very desperate, and hopefully you're not about to lose an arm or anything like that. It doesn't do me any good. I'm not a soldier or a judge, so for me to take an oath to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States of America or whatever is included in that oath... I could do that, but I've never been in a position to defend, to protect the Constitution of the United States of America. There's a magician's oath promising to never reveal your secrets to your magic tricks. I only know one trick, and it's not very good. I'd be glad to share that with you. But even if I took that oath and promised not to tell you my secret to my one very lame trick, I'm not a magician. That oath doesn't do me a whole lot of good. So why do we expect other people who are not Christians, not starting with the same foundation we are, to act and behave and think and live their lives like Christians? We have to start, first start by evangelism. We have to tell them about the hope and the love of Christ and what he's done for them on the cross. And not just our friends, not just our family, but those who have offended us, those who we don't like, those who rub us the wrong way. After all, that is the idea of grace, is it not? Grace is defined as unmerited favor. Unmerited, meaning we don't deserve it, we didn't earn it. It's not like I can say, hey God, did you see what I did? So you owe me grace because of this. It doesn't work that way. It is unmerited favor. Romans 5 puts it this way. In verse 10, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Hear the first part of that. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. God didn't send his Son while we were getting our lives right. He didn't send his son once we had proven that we were making an effort to do the right thing. He didn't send his son only after he saw enough good works from us. He sent his son when we were enemies. 
actively against and opposed to God is when he sent his son. Put yourself in the situation for just a, just a moment. That there's this person that you hate, I mean dislike, because we'll be honest, we're Christians, we're not going to hate anybody, right? We just severely dislike them. And someone asks you to sacrifice a relationship with one of your children for a relationship with this person you severely dislike. No way anyone would do that. But God did. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For these people who have beaten me? For these people who have put nails through his wrists, through his feet? For a relationship with them? You're allowing them to kill me? It's exactly what God did to have a relationship with us. The de very definition of grace. As I was thinking about it this week, it kind of dawned on me that by definition, I probably do not have grace on my family. On my wife, on my friends, on you guys, I probably do not have grace. Because you're my friends. I like you guys. Some of you guys I even love. By definition, it is not unmerited. By definition, we're friends. You've earned my respect. You've earned our friendship. So I help you out, and I hear you, and I... We hang out, we're friends, but it's not grace because it's not unmerited. The very definition means when we have grace on people, it's going to be people who don't deserve it, who, we, who have hurt us, who have offended us, who, who we severely dislike. Because that's what God did with us. And hopefully, that impacts our life to such a point that we live different, that we are different. First Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Hopefully we are living our lives different and we want to honor God with our lives and, and this becomes our rallying cry that we tell others because it is God's desire that all come to a knowledge of God, to a knowledge of truth, that we live our lives in such a way that we're telling people about who God is, that we're telling people about the love God has for them, that we're telling people about the grace he had on us and, he's gonna, and that he has on them, the forgiveness for whatever you've done in your past. Hopefully that our lives reflect this because this is God's desire that all come to a knowledge of him. But we have to be living that out first. We have to know that in the depths of our soul and understand how much God loves us. And it has to impact every area of our lives. If I get up here and I talk to you guys about loving your spouse and how important that is, but you know that I don't do that at home, you're not going to listen to me. You're not going to think that really God's word has grabbed root in my heart. If we're talking and I encourage you to go and apologize to somebody because you might have actually been in the wrong, you might have done something that was wrong, but you know that I didn't do that, that I hurt somebody and I did not go and apologize to it, then 
It doesn't do any good. So when we tell others about the grace of God, when we tell others about the love of God, they have to see it in us. They have to see it in our lives and how it's impacted us in order to believe it themselves. So how has the love of God, the grace of God, gripped you and changed you? Because it has to start with us. And that's that first part of discipleship, of of baptizing, because I, I firmly believe that if it is taken root in our lives, and there's the evidence of that in our lives, and we tell others about the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, then they will come to believe and put their hope in Jesus Christ. And I believe, and then we baptize them. And then we teach them to observe all that God has commanded. And I don't think that looks like a classroom and sitting down and saying, okay, point number one for today, God says not to do this. Point number two, God says to do this. I don't think it looks like that. I think discipleship looks a lot more like opening up our lives to other people. Inviting people along the way. It looks a lot more like saying, hey, I know you're new to the faith, and I'd love just to get together and talk sometime. I happen to be watching the game this Saturday, Sunday after church. You want to hang out and watch the game, and we can, we can talk, and we can explore this faith thing together. Because then what happens in that meantime is, hopefully, as the love and grace of God has taken root in your life, you treat people different. And so when they're over, they're going to see how you treat your wife or husband different. You're gonna, they're going to see how you treat your kids different. They're going to see how you are a different person than what they expect. Or different than the rest of the world. And it creates opportunities to share and coach and disciple and mentor other people. And we've made it out to be this complicated thing that I'm not qualified to disciple, I'm not qualified to mentor. And I think that's the biggest lie that Satan has thrown our way in order to keep the church down, in order to keep us spiritually babies. I was listening to a video this last week of a guy speaking, I think it was at a men's conference, so he references men specifically. But I think this goes for men and women across the board. He says, in modern American Christianity, we will not tolerate biblical, spiritual, and theologically mature men. Let me say that again. In modern American Christianity, we will not tolerate spiritual, biblical, theologically mature men. We just can't have it. Nothing more than mediocrity. We can't have it. And I could not agree more. He went on to explain, you have a 15, 16, 17-year-old boy, uh, a student who uh, expresses an interest in the Word of God, in theology, in church history. And what we say to him, God must be calling you into ministry. In other words, you belong in a Bible college over there, in a seminary over there, not here in the real world. Why in the world do we not expect that of every single believer? Why do we not expect biblical and spiritual and theological maturity in every single believer regardless of your profession? Why does that have to go to Bible college or have to go to seminary? Why do they have to go into ministry? Why can't those people just be the expectation of what it means to be a believer in our world today? But no. You must go over there and not be a part of us. We don't want you to challenge us. We don't want you to 
to make us do more than what we just have to. And we just say no. Hannah gave me permission to share how when she was in college, she went to, I think, four or five different women and asked for them to mentor and disciple her. Women who were two or three, four steps ahead of her in life, married with kids, maybe grandkids, and, and could just teach her what it meant to be a godly, biblical woman in this world. And every single one of them said, you know, I just I don't think I'm quite the right person for that. I, I don't think that I'm at that point in my faith yet. See, sometimes we make it sound really good. We make it sound really spiritual, and we say, I'm just one beggar t- trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. If you've been a believer for 20, 30, 40 years, you should be grabbing their hand and saying, hey, this is where you find bread. This is where it's at. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it tastes like. Let me show you. Let me teach you what I've learned about faith about what it means to be a Christian in this world. There is no, no excuse. If I want to be an electrician, I'm going to go find someone who's been an electrician for 40 years and I say, hey, teach me what it means to be an electrician. Teach me what you know. And it is absolutely ridiculous to even think about a response from an electrician who's done it 40 years to say, you know, I really don't know much. I just duct tape some things together and it just, I just hope for the best. I don't really know what I'm doing. It's ridiculous. But we settle for it in the church. We settle for it in Christianity, in our faith, and in our walk with God. And why is that? I think one of the big reasons is that it's intimidating. It's scary. We don't know what it means to disciple, to mentor someone else. We have it in our mind that it's sitting in a classroom back there and reading scripture and explaining scripture and it just has to be things like that, but that's not what I remember about the people who have mentored me and discipled me in my life. What I remember is my dad pulling the car around after I dropped a gum wrapper out of the window and he made me look for 60 minutes to find that gum gum wrapper because this is God's planet, we're going to respect it, we're not going to litter and he waited in the car as I found, <laughs> tried to find that gum wrapper. What I remember is my dad dropping me off at the house and saying, hey, I just saw someone up the road not far who was walking. I'm going to see if they want to lift. Tell your mom I'll be in in a moment. What I remember is my dad showing me, living out in his life what it meant to be a believer, to have faith, to let faith infiltrate every aspect of his life. That's, that's what I remember about faith, about that man who discipled me. There's another guy. His name is Doc Reese. He was a professor of mine at Bible College. He just passed away this summer. I did not think I'd get choked up at this as I practiced it earlier. He taught me a lot about faith. I remember being in his class And he said that he was going to go home and make love to his wife. He was going to wash the dishes and vacuum the carpet and clean the windows. Because that's making love. He taught me what it was like to really love his spouse. I remember him coming in, excuse me, 
to the cafeteria and eating dinner, and we were at a table, and he sat down, and he didn't just leave after dinner was over, but he talked for two hours with us about life. He had a motorcycle. He liked to go biking, caving. He invited us even to go with him sometimes, and it was awesome. I took him up on caving one time, and that was a blast. I remember another professor who said, you know that Doc Reese is an introvert, right? Like a strong introvert. And we were like, there's, there's just no way. This man is, he's always around us. He's always talking. There is no way he's an introvert. He's like, no, no extrovert builds a cabin in the middle of the woods without internet. He said, if you really know Doc, he's an introvert. But he knows that Jesus would spend time with students and invest in their lives and disciple others. So that's what he does. I remember the people who opened up their lives to me and let me see what they do, who invited me over for dinner, who talked about life and showed me how faith had impacted their life. It doesn't have to be complicated, people. It doesn't have to be difficult. You can do it regardless of your age. If there's an elementary or middle school student who just gives their life to Christ, and we need some high school students who can drive to say, hey, I just want to show you a little bit of what it looks like to be a Christian in a public school system, or at a private school, or as a homeschooler. I, need, I just want to show you what it's like when you're being bullied, when kids are making fun of you. Can we go get some ice cream at some point? Let's just talk about life. We need people who will disciple and mentor young families those who have grandkids, to, to pour into them and just have them over for their, to their house for, for food or to invite them to do things as a family. We have people coming to know Christ at every stage and every age of their life, and we need people all kinds of ages to say, I, I can do that. It might be awkward at first. It might be outside my comfort zone, but because Jesus has given us this command to make disciples, I'm going to trust him to give me the words to say, to give me the courage. I'm going to trust him to give me what I need to disciple someone else. Maybe, maybe you're older. You don't get out much. Maybe you are still more than capable of going to get your own groceries, but you know of someone who just came to know Christ, and you call them up and say, hey, would you mind picking up a grocery list and some money and getting my groceries? And when you get back, we'll, uh, we'll just sit down. We'll, I'll have some cookies and coffee or tea. And we'll just talk. We've got to be creative. It's a new world. It's a different world. And discipleship 50 years ago was going to look very different than it does today. This world looks very different 50 years ago than it does today. But this is what God has called us to do. To make disciples to go and tell an unbelieving world about the good news of Jesus Christ and to mentor, to disciple, to spend time to open up our lives and just invite others in and let them see how faith has changed how you do everything. And this is, this was the, the bones of what I gave this vision team. I want us to be known as a church that makes disciples. I want us to be known as a church that goes out into our community 
and prays and evangelizes, that lives out our faith in such a way that people ask questions and they come to know the grace and love of God because they see it in our lives. I want when people are baptized for someone to come alongside them and say, hey, you know what, let's get together. Once every couple weeks, maybe once a month, let's just get together, let's do something fun. Let me disciple you. Back when, uh, before Hannah and I were married, we were dating, and she was telling me about how she was applying to be a foster mom. And I thought that was awesome. I encouraged her to go through it and ask some more questions about what that involved and would, would be like. And then she told me about this organization she's going through and how they have respite care. I didn't know a thing about respite care. I had no clue what that meant. Do you know that it can be a little bit difficult for a foster or for a family to welcome in another child after everything they've been through? That sometimes it can be difficult. And so what respite care is, is they do the same training, the same background checks, the same everything, and, and once a month their families have the option of just taking a break. And the kids who are in staying with this family, it can be rough on them. The kids have an option of taking a break once a month and going and staying with someone else. And I said, you know what? I'm not at the place as a single guy in ministry in crazy hours. I can't foster, but I can do respite care. So we went through the training, and during the training, they explained to us what more about respite care. And they said, don't do anything fancy. Don't buy, you know, four tickets to go to the movies or go to King's Dominion every weekend that they're with you. Don't do anything elaborate and special because then they'll go back to their families and they'll want to be with you more, even though that's not what you do on a regular basis. And they might act up or they might ask for a move, they might ask for a change, and it could be really disruptive if you do these grand big things every weekend that they're with you. So just invite them along to go wherever you go, whatever you do. I had a respite placement that I had on a weekend. They called and asked if he could go with, stay with me for a weekend. I had planned to go to Bristol to see my parents. But I'm more than welcome to come with me. If he's okay with that, the family's okay with that, you guys are okay with that. And they said, sure, we'll, we'll ask. And he was. He didn't have a problem with that. So we packed up, and he came. And about an hour later, we left and went to Bristol. And as I was sitting in that training, and as I've done this a little bit more, it's such a beautiful picture of discipleship and what it means to mentor and disciple others. It doesn't have to be fancy and complicated. It's just inviting them along with you, being open to, to taking them with you. And that's what I want us to do as a church. That's what God has called us to do as a church, to make disciples and to disciple those who give their lives to Christ. So we talked about that for the first meeting as the vision team, and then as we continued, we fleshed it out a little bit more of what does it look like to be a disciple? What's involved in this process? And we came up with the tagline of love, grow, and serve. Love, grow, serve. It's simple. It's not complicated. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to unpack that and what that means, and we're going to flesh it out and I'm excited, guys. I really am. I came up with some goals. I came up with some things that we're going to do. We did as a team. And I can't wait to see what happens from this. 
But I got to start with the question How are you making disciples? And at the root of that question, how has, have you allowed faith to take root in your lives? How have you allowed faith and the love of God to dictate what you do, how you do it? And what is the evidence in your life that you are a Christian? Because that's where it starts. After all, Christ gave his life. He gave his dying breath for us to be in a relationship with him. And he doesn't ask just for us to add church or to add faith or add this thing that we do on Sunday morning to our schedule. He asks that this thing called faith, this relationship we have with him, infiltrates everything else. How we work, how we date, how we interact with our spouse, with our children, our thoughts, our words, everything else. On your way in, I hope you picked up a communion cup because what we're going to do is we're just going to pause. And I'd like to ask you to take this moment to reflect and think about how faith has taken root in your heart because that is the core of it. We can't go and evangelize. We can't invite people into our lives if faith has not taken root in our lives and changed how we live. So we're just going to pause and take a moment to say thank you. And then I'd like to ask that you just think about how faith has taken root in your life. If you're watching online, grab a piece of bread, grab something as a cup to remember the death and resurrection of Christ with us, and reflect on this also. If you'd like someone to pray with you, I'm going to be down here on this side. For the duration of this time and the next song, I'd love to, to pray with you. If you're online, um, on our church online platform, through our website, there's a button for prayer. If you'd like prayer, please reach out to us and we'd be glad to pray with you also. Let's pray. Father God, you are so, so good to us. You gave everything for us to have a relationship with you. And God, I just pray that this is not another thing we do. I pray that this is not just another event we add to our calendar. I pray this is just not something else that we add to our resume as far as who we are, but that it is the paper the resume is written on. That it is in every aspect of our job and our relationships and our life. God, I pray that, that our relationship with you has impacted everything. God, I thank you for your son the sacrifice your son made on the cross for us. God, I pray in these moments as we sit and reflect, God, I pray that we can examine our own lives. God, I pray you reveal to us areas we're not doing so great so that we can do better. God, we love you. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.